The six-year-old boy was bored out of his mind. The worship service had gone into overtime. The preacher was going on and on. The youngster had stared at the ceiling and looked at the carpet and looked at every wall in the sanctuary when all of a sudden his eyes fell on a bronze plaque. Engraved on that bronze plaque was the American flag, the stars, the stripes. Underneath that flag was a list of individuals. He'd never seen that before. He poked his mom, who was sitting beside him, and said, Hey, Mom, what's that? Well, she gave him, you know, the pious pucker, the slanted shake, you know, kind of like that look that says, Don't, don't say anything. Don't, don't, we just need to be quiet. But the little boy would not take no for an answer. He kept asking the question, Mom, what is that? She wanted to respond and hope that her son would pipe down. So she also wanted to use the fewest number of words possible. So she simply leaned over and said, that's the people we know who have died in the service. That seemed to satisfy the young boy. (laughs) Until all of a sudden his eyes got really big. He poked his mom another time, said, hey, mom, one more question. Was it the morning service or the evening service? (laughs) I remember as a child, My pastor would always say, if you don't like worship, you're not going to like heaven. Because in heaven, all we're going to do is worship the Lord. And I thought to myself, but heaven can't be this boring. (laughs) I mean, that was kind of my experience growing up in church. This morning, I want to talk to you about worship. What is worship? In his book entitled The Air I Breathe, it's Louis Giglio who says, worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is our response to what we value most. That begs the question, how do you determine what you value most? I think a surefire way to get at it is to ask ourselves just a few fundamental questions. Questions like, how do I spend my time? To what do I give my affection or my attention? How do I spend my money? Where do I place my allegiance? You answer those simple questions and inevitably it will lead to your object of worship. Now all throughout the Bible, the scripture is very clear that the object of our worship ought to be the Lord. And so this morning, I want to speak to you about dynamic worship. I acknowledge that there are no worship bulletins in Holy Scripture. There's no place you can turn where you can find this is what you have to do in a worship service. This is the order of the service. We don't find any worship bulletins in all of Scripture. But there are a few places where God weighs in on the subject. One such place is Psalm 95. It's to that psalm that we give our attention this morning. We continue our summer series entitled uh, Summer of Psalms. I invite you to turn to Psalm 95. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, 
as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. In Psalm 95, you and I find four characteristics of dynamic worship. First, dynamic worship lifts up praise. Dynamic worship lifts up praise. In the opening five verses of the psalm, the author tells us who we worship, how we worship, and why we worship. Who do we worship? We sing to the Lord, written in all capital letters. We shout to the rock of our salvation. The object of our worship, our praise is lifted to our Lord and Savior. He is the one true God of the universe. It is Yahweh himself. We acknowledge that worship is an audience of one. I know that when we gather, we count how many people come to the worship service. We do that in good Baptist fashion. But there's only one person that actually matters, and it's the Lord. If the Lord shows up, worship takes place. If the Lord doesn't show up, it doesn't matter how many people are in the house, worship doesn't happen. You've heard me say before that every Sunday as I'm driving to Pelham, every time before I mount this platform to preach, I ask the Lord, may this be an experience that is God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-filled. Because I acknowledge who we worship. We worship the Lord, and unless what we do is God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-filled, then you and I are just wasting our time and wasting our breath. But if God is here, which I believe him to be, and if he is here as a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and if what we lift up to him is God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-filled, then watch out, because who we're worshiping is the one true God of the universe. The psalmist answers the question, who we worship. He also says something about how we worship. He uses phrases like, sing for joy to the Lord. Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come before him with thanksgiving. Extol him with music and song. We are to sing for joy. Singing is fundamental to worship. Always has been, always will be. I do find it interesting that he does not tell us what song to sing. Whether it's an ancient hymn or a contemporary chorus, he doesn't say. I think from God's perspective, it really doesn't matter all that much, so long as we are singing with joy. We sing with joy. It's, it's a joy that the world can't take away. It's a joy that Satan cannot snatch. It's a joy that cancer cannot cripple. It's a joy that tragedy cannot topple. It's a joy that a dilemma cannot debilitate. It's a joy that sickness cannot snuff out. We have a joy. And so we sing with everything that's inside of us and we sing for joy. He also says we shout to the rock of our salvation. Now, when I was growing up, you did not shout in church. But apparently the psalmist did not grow up in the same church that I grew up in because he says it's perfectly fine to shout. We shout for joy and we shout to the rock of our salvation. Oh, it's true that we, we shout. We shout on Saturday for our favorite college football team. We shout for our favorite uh, son and daughter as they're playing baseball or softball. We shout at a concert. 
Well, there are times that we shout. What the psalmist is saying is that if you can shout for something else, you can certainly shout for the Savior. Because he is the rock of our salvation. And I got to tell you, I've, 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 got, I've got a reason to shout. You see, I, I was dead, but now I'm alive again. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was unforgivable, yet he has forgiven me. I, I've got some reason to shout. You know it well. Uh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It was nailed to the cross, so I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's some shouting music. That's a shouting moment where we say, you know what? I've got some reason to shout. You remember what Jesus said as he entered into Jerusalem when the Pharisees said, you've got to have your disciples pipe down. He he said, if they are silent, these rocks will cry out. I don't know about you, but no rock is going to take my place. And I'm going to shout to the rock of my salvation. Psalmist says we come before him with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not just a season of the year. It's not just a particular Thursday in November. But Thanksgiving is the demeanor of the worshiper. Why did you come this morning? I'll tell you why we came this morning, just to say thank you. We have a reason to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for waking me up this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for air in my lungs. Thank you, Jesus, for a roof over my head, clothes on my back. Thank you, Jesus, for the blessings of life. Thank you, Jesus, for my wife. Thank you, Jesus, for my two children. Thank you, Jesus, for this church I call home. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing me to preach. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me of sin. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way when there was no way. Thank you, Jesus, for fixing stuff that's messed me up. Thank you, Jesus, for removing the skeletons in my closet. I just came this morning just to enter into his presence with thanksgiving on my lips. Why? because I've got a lot of reason just to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We, we enter into his presence with thanksgiving. We extol him with music and song. We extol him. We magnify him. We lift him up. We praise his name. We extol him with music and song. Music. That means instrumentation. For the psalmist, there was really no instrument off limits. Any instrument could be used to extol the Lord. So uh, there were cymbals and the harp and the stringed instruments and the woodwinds, all the types of instruments used to extol and magnify the name of the Lord. We extol him in music and song. Song is the lyrics. So the songs that we sing, they're very important. The words that cross our lips, very important. Gotta be theologically sound, gotta be accurate. Because we want to extol and magnify the holy name of God. So we want to use holy words as we magnify the Lord. So this is how we worship. We sing for joy. We shout to the rock of our salvation. We come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. But fundamentally, why do we worship? Why do we lift up praise? The author simply says, because he is our great God. Do you need another reason? Because he is our great God. Next line says, he is the king of all gods. Do you need another reason? He is our God. He is the king of all gods. Why do we worship? Because he's the only one worthy of our worship. And his identity is revealed in his activity. So the mountain peaks are his. The valleys are his. The dry land is his. The seas are in his hands. Because he is creator, he is worthy 
to be worshiped by his creation. His activity reveals his identity. His identity is that he is worthy of worship. His activity bears witness to his identity. He is the only one who is worthy of all of our adoration, affection, and praise. But ultimately, why do we worship? It's the first word of the psalm. God has invited us to come. Why do we worship? Because we've been invited to come. He says it not once but twice. Verse 1, verse 6. It's a one-word invitation. Come. You do realize God should have said stay away. He's God and we're not. He's perfect, we're imperfect. He's holy, we're unholy. He's creator, we're creation. What he should say is stay away. But he doesn't. He says, come. He invites us to come. And he puts no parameters around it. He doesn't say, come if you feel like it. Come if it's conducive with your schedule. Come if you want to. Uh, Come if it makes you comfortable. Come if you like the songs. Come if you like the preacher. Come if you like the experience. Come if you don't have anything else that you'd rather be doing in this moment. No, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, come. Just come. Come just as you are. Can you stop and think about this? This is a great, tremendous invitation that God, the maker of heaven and earth, has invited you and me to come into his presence and worship him. Why in the world would we stay away? It should be that it would require all of the U.S. military to keep us from coming in here this morning. Why? Because the king of all kings has invited us to come. The God of all gods has invited us to come. The creator of everything seen and unseen has invited us to come. And nobody's going to keep me from coming because God has me on his invitation list. He just said, come. Why do you worship? Because God has invited you. The psalmist says dynamic worship lifts up praise. He tells us who we worship, the Lord, the rock of our salvation. He says something about how we worship. We sing for joy. We shout. We come before him with thanksgiving. We extol him with music and song. And he says why we worship. Because he alone is our great God. His identity is revealed in his activity. And ultimately, he just invites us to come. So dynamic worship lifts up praise. Secondly, dynamic worship bows down in submission. Verses 6 and 7, come. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before our maker. For he is our God and we are his people. The sheep under his care, the flock under his care. We bow down in submission. The word submission is a military term. It means to arrange under. Worship literally means to fall prostrate on your face. It means that you get as low as you possibly can. You you, you bow down and you acknowledge that you are a spiritual beggar coming into royal presence and the only appropriate posture is for you to be on your face. I acknowledge that really none of us worship that way. I mean, I ought to preach lying down. We ought to worship the Lord on our faces. Oh, we stand sometimes. We sit most of the time. We've been together two and a half years. I don't think I've ever seen you lie down. You've never seen me lie down. And I know what you're thinking. Some of y'all are thinking, if I got down, I never could get up. 
But the word worship, it, it really means to bow down, to get down, lie down on your face. So we fall prostrate before the Lord. We acknowledge that he is God. He is our God. He is our maker. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. When you read Psalm 95, you get the image that not only do we lift up praise, but we bow down in submission. So that I'll submit to you that dynamic worship has a rowdy reverence to it. Celebratory silence. I know those phrases sound like contradictory terms. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can you have rowdy reverence? How can you have celebratory silence? Yet you read the Psalm 95, and it seems that's exactly the way God describes it, that he is worthy of all of our rowdiness, and he's worthy of all of our reverence, and he's worthy of all of our celebration, and he's worthy of all of our silence. There are times when in worship, we need to shout. And there are times when we need to be silent. There are times when we enter God's presence that we need to sing. And there are times that all we ought to hear are sobs. There are times when we need to get loud. There are times when we ought to be muted. Now God does this not because... There are people that just, by their DNA, they like to get rowdy, and there are other people that like to be reverent. It's not because people just like to be celebratory, and other individuals, they, they like to be silent. No, we do this not because that's what we like. We do this just because what he deserves. There's a big difference. It's not about making ourselves comfortable. It's not, it's not about just doing what feels right or natural. No, we do this rowdy reverence. We do this celebratory silence. Not because we're trying to confuse people, but because God is worthy of every extreme. He's worthy of our rowdiness. He's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of our celebration. He's worthy of our silence. That also tells me that regardless of where I find myself on the spectrum, it's a good time to worship. So I worship him when I'm on the mountaintop and I worship him when I'm in the valley. There was a song several years ago that simply had the lyric, I choose to worship. I choose to believe. That's pretty good theology because we have to choose to worship. If all we do is worship when we feel like it, there'll be a lot of times when we don't feel like it and we won't worship. So we worship the Lord on every extreme, in pleasure and in pain, in success and setback. We worship him when we're on top of the world and we worship him when the world is caving in on us. Never a bad time to worship the Lord. The psalmist is exactly right. We lift up praise and we bow down in submission. There's a third characteristic of dynamic worship. Dynamic worship listens up to the word of God. It listens up to the word of God. Verse 8, so today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. That word if can be translated when. So today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, when he speaks, today, when he proclaims, today, when he shares his word, do not harden your heart. 
paramount in worship is preaching. I say that not just because I'm a preacher. I say it because I think it's biblical. It's not just that worship is lifting up praise and bowing down in submission, but it's listening up to the word of God. In fact, I would say that we are best apt to listen up to the word of God when we have rowdy reverence, when we have lifted up praise and bowed down in submission. It kind of sets the table for the word of God. And so the psalmist says today, when God speaks to you, listen up. Don't turn a deaf ear. Don't have a hard heart. There are many good definitions of biblical preaching, but the one that I gravitate towards most frequently is the one spoken by John R.W. Stott, who says that biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity so that God's voice is heard and his people obey him. There are a lot of definitions of preaching, but that's the one that I've committed to memory. That's the one that I fashion a philosophy of ministry around. That's the one I try to model week in and week out. What is biblical preaching? Let's break it down just for a second. Biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text. To say that it has to be opened up in some way implies that it's closed. It's kind of like a treasure chest that must be unlocked. And then once you open it up, you see the treasure that lies within. The word of God is a treasure chest that God has given us. And I submit to you that it is the spirit of God who opens the word of God as it's being proclaimed by the man of God to the people of God. That God's word is opened up to us. That's why we call it expositional preaching. We are exposing the truth that's in there. It's not impositional preaching. We're imposing the truth into the text. No, we are exposing what's already there. When we open it up, we are exposing the truth. And it's the Spirit of God that illuminates that truth to you and to me. We believe that we open up the inspired text with such faithfulness. Faithfulness to the text. Because the meaning of the word can only be found in the word. The meaning can only have a thorough intent. What I mean by that, it can never mean today what the authors never intended for it to mean. It's there in the word that we find the meaning. And so that's why we talk about the historical, the grammatical, uh, the theological background of the word. Because we know that in the word, there is truth. And the truth comes from within the word. We don't impose truth into it. We expose the truth that's already there. It is the word of God that is faithfully deposited in our life. Let me say it this way. The worst way that you can do a Bible study is to say, okay, now today we're going to talk about Psalm 95 and we're going to read it. And what does that mean to you? And what does that mean to you? And what does it mean to you? And what does it mean to you? Friends, that is the worst way to do a Bible study. Because then what you think is that the meaning of the text is driven by the reader. The meaning of the text is somehow a compilation of what everybody else interprets it to mean. That can, nothing could be further from the truth. So if you do a Bible study of Psalm 95 in that way, somebody could say, well, I really think Psalm 95 is about farming because it talks about flocks. It talks about sheep. So God cares even about the lowest of animals. Oh, brother, that's a deep insight. I didn't see that one. And somebody else says, no, I don't really think it's about farming. I really think it's about interpersonal relationships. Because he tells us, don't be like you were in Meribah and Massa, which really means quarreling and testing. Let's get back to the deep uh, Hebrew language. And it really means quarreling and testing. So God doesn't want us to quarrel with each other. He wants us to have good marriages, husbands and wives, not quarreling. We're not supposed to put him to the test. So really, this is about how we interact with one another so we can have 
have good marriages so we can have good, happy, healthy children. Brother, I didn't see that at all. I don't see how you got that, but you got something pretty deep out of there. And somebody else says, no, no, it's about evangelism. It's all about evangelism because at the end of it, he talks about the generations and God cares about the generations. He wants the generations to know God and to know Christ. So this psalm is about evangelism. Brother, I didn't see that either. I will tell you that God does care about every creature. He does care about farming. God does care about marriages and families. He wants us to glorify him. And God does care about evangelism. It's the very heartbeat of God. But can I say none of that comes from Psalm 95? Because it cannot mean today what it never was intended to mean. Why was Psalm 95 written? So that we know what dynamic worship looks like. This is why it was written. It's about worship. It's about how we approach God and how God accepts what we offer up unto him. How do you get at that? It's through the faithful examination of the text. So John R. W. Stott says that biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness to the text and sensitivity to the people. Because the word of God is a sword. It's a double-edged sword. And if you're not careful, you can slice and dice when really what the word of God has given us to do is to cut and prune. You've got to be very careful with the word because it can slice and dice. It can do harm. But what God wants it to do is to cut and prune so that you and I will be more fruitful and effective. So biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness to the text, sensitivity to the people so that God's voice is heard and people know how to obey. God's voice is heard because the God who spoke still speaks. The God who moved still moves. And he's going to say what he has already said. He cannot contradict himself. So God speaks what he has already spoken. He speaks real truth into your life and mine. He helps us to apply it in appropriate ways. But this God still speaks. We do not serve a dead God. Our God is very much alive. And preaching is really not over at the final amen. Preaching is not over until there is obedience. The sermon's not done until God's people know how to obey him. So John R. W. Stott has a pretty good definition of biblical preaching. It is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity so that God's voice is heard and people obey him. This is the very heartbeat of Jesus. Jesus tells a story. It's uh, located in Luke chapter 8. He says, there was a farmer who went to sow seed. He scattered that seed and it fell on dry ground, hard soil. It fell on rocky soil. It fell on fertile soil. It also fell on thorny soil. When the seed fell on the hard soil, the birds came in and swooped it up and ate it and took it away. The seed that fell on the rocky soil, it sprouted, but that Palestinian sun caused it to wither. The seed also sprouted in the thorny soil, but it got choked out by all the other thorns and thistles. Then there was good soil. When the seed landed on good soil, it produced a bumper crop 30, 60, 100 times over what was sown. Jesus got done preaching. The disciples said, what's that all about? What are you talking about, Jesus? So Jesus, in a very rare occasion, actually explained the parable. He said it's about preaching. It's about sowing the seed. It's about scattering the gospel. The seed is the gospel. The different soils are different types of people. It's the different ways people hear and they listen. 
Some people are as hard as rock. The gospel is scattered and it bounces off of them. You and I would have a better chance of growing a cornfield on the asphalt across the street at the annex than we would have an effective field out of some people's hearts. Some people are just hard and calloused. You present the gospel and it just bounces right off. Jesus says some people are like that rocky soil. Oh, they hear the word, they receive it. They say, yes, I'm going to do it. Yes, I'm going to change that. But the moment the heat of persecution, somebody makes fun of them because of their transformed life. Somebody makes fun of them because of their renewed faith. In that moment, they wither away and they fall away. Jesus said some people are like that thorny soil. Yes, they hear the word, they receive it. They make decisions. They say, yes, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to focus on him but they're also consumed with the worries and pleasures of life. The thorns and thistles, the worries and pleasures, they grow right alongside that seed. So there are people that are, yes, they're concerned about Christ, they're concerned about the church, but equally so, they're concerned about the mortgage and their money and their family and their friends and their future and their goals and their dreams and their ball playing and and their sex life and their health and, and their future, everything else they're concerned about as well. And Jesus says those worries, those pleasures choke out the word of God. Then There's some people like that good soil. Oh, they hear the word, sinks deeply into their soul. They make lifelong decisions. It transforms the way they live. And then they begin to produce a bountiful crop, 30, 60, 100 fold. So Jesus says to his disciples, so be very careful how you listen. Because the word of God is not just on the lips of the preacher, but also on the ears of the hearer. And preaching is not really preaching until God's voice is heard and God's people know how to obey. And then they actually do it. I've read that parable numerous times that Jesus told in Luke chapter 8. At some level, I find great comfort in it that Jesus, who's the best preacher that's ever walked on the planet, even for Jesus, only 25% of the people get it. Only one out of four actually get it. And if that's the best odds for Jesus, then what am I going to get, right? I'll go ahead and tell you it's less than 25% that really can clearly pick up and understand what's being proclaimed. Oh, but don't get too discouraged. Because if you do the math, and if 25% of the people have a bumper crop of 100-fold, That means that on this given day, when roughly 1,000 people will hear this sermon, 250 of them will really get it. And what's going to happen? They're going to produce 25,000 disciples. Right? I mean, you do the math, that sounds pretty good. That 250 people, 100 fold, that's 25,000 disciples. Okay, so I know it's not as high as we want it to be, but praise the Lord, when people get the gospel, they really get it. And when the gospel really gets them, it really is effective. Jesus says, be careful how you listen. It's not that you're predetermined what type of soil you're gonna be. Just because you're hard soil now doesn't mean you can't be good soil today or down the road. It's how you listen. So John R.W. Stott says, listen up to the word of God. Psalm 95 says, listen up to the word of God. The dynamic worship occurs when people are listening to the proclamation of God's word. For biblical preaching is opening up the inspired text with such faithfulness and sensitivity so that God's voice is heard and God's people know how to obey him. There's a fourth characteristic. Dynamic worship occurs 
when people walk out in obedience. Not just lift up praise, not just bow down in submission, not just listen up to the word of God, but to walk out in obedience. This is what the psalmist implies when he gives a history lesson, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the days of Meribah or Massa. No sooner had the Israelites gotten out of Egypt, they began to complain against their leader, Moses. Moses, we think you are an idiot. We've got the data to prove it because we've all taken a, a census and we all agree you're, you are an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. At least when we were slaves, we had water to drink. You've led us out here to a blazing desert. We're going to die of food and we're going to die of thirst. So in very dramatic fashion, God provides water for his people. But because they had been quarreling, it was a place called Meribah. God had given his children um, the word that they were going to go into the promised land. He said, I'll give this to you on oath. This is your land. So Moses sends out 12 spies. Of the 12, only two of them come back with a favorable report, Joshua and Caleb. Only Joshua and Caleb come back and say, yep, that's our land. God has given it to us and we can take it. The other 10, the majority, 10 of them came back and said, there's no way. There are giants living in that land. They are huge. I mean, they're overwhelming. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. There's no way we can take them. But Joshua and Caleb said, but didn't God say that that was our land? Didn't he give us his promise? Didn't he give us his word? Yes, we know that God gave us his word, but we don't believe him. We don't believe that we can actually take it. They are giants in that land. And God said, so my anger burned against that generation. Why? Because they did not take God at his word. They did not walk out in obedience. They did not respond in faith. If faith is anything, it is taking God at his word. If he said it, he will do it. And you can walk in confidence knowing that God, if he declared it, it will take place. And yet for 40 years, the Israelites walked in circles. They made zigzags all over the wilderness. They had no GPS. They didn't know where they were going. Yet God was directing them just to walk around in circles long enough for that entire generation to die. Because God said, no one in this generation will enter my rest. In Psalm 95, the rest means the promised land. Not one person of this generation will enter the promised land. Why? Because they did not take God at his word. The New Testament letter of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4 references this passage up to four times. And in Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, the New Testament letter, this is not so much about not entering rest of the promised land, but not entering rest of salvation. So this is what the author of the Hebrew letter in the New Testament says. In chapter 4, in the opening verses, the author says that we have received the same gospel that our forefathers heard. But they had regarded it as not valuable 
because they did not combine it with faith. Do you hear what the New Testament author is saying? He's saying the gospel that we've heard, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation by grace is the same gospel that they heard in the Old Testament. It's the same gospel that our forefathers heard and yet they did not value it. They did not receive it. They rejected it. Why? Because they did not combine it with faith. They did not take God at his word. And because they did not combine it with faith, because they did not walk out in obedience, God did not allow them to enter into his rest. So the author of the Hebrew letter says to the church, don't fall to the same disobedience as our forefathers. Take God at his word. Receive the gospel. Hear the word of God. Allow it to sink deeply into your heart and then walk out in obedience. This, my friends, is dynamic worship. When a congregation, when a church gathers and when they lift up praise, when they bow down in submission, when they listen up to the word of God, when they walk out in obedience, that is when acceptable dynamic worship of God takes place. I've told you before about Tony Evans He has a quote that I absolutely love. He says, it's the transformed mind producing transformed feet. That's what we're after. If all we get in the church are biblically literate people, then we've missed it. If all we get are people who can recite the facts, if all we get are people who know the good old story, and don't misunderstand me, we need to know the good old story. And I acknowledge that biblical literacy is at an all-time low. I understand that. So you think to yourself, well, at least we know the story. Yes, that's great. But if all we do are simply produce people who can regurgitate the story and know the biblical facts, then we have missed it. We don't exist just to inspire people. We don't exist just to inform people, but the gospel has been given to us to transform us so that we walk out in obedience. The goal is not to stuff our minds with biblical facts. The goal is to stuff our life with the biblical Jesus. You and I do that. And we'll be transformed from the inside out. You and I do that and we will have dynamic worship. Worship that looks up and lifts up praise, bows down in submission, listens up to the word of God, walks out in obedience. The writer of the Hebrew letter gives us only one example, only one model. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles Let us run the race with perseverance. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. You know what the author of the Hebrew letter is saying? He's saying, hey, we ought to have dynamic worship. We lift up praise. We bow down in submission. We listen up to the word of God, and we walk out following God hard after Jesus Christ. So you and I, may we be transformed to look more and more like God's son, our savior. And when that happens, I promise you, dynamic worship will take place and God will welcome us 
into his rest. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. And Father, spare us from just another worship service. We don't need just to hear another sermon, and we don't need just to sing another song. What we need, we need to be changed by you. We need to be transformed in your image. We need to have worship that is dynamic, not for our sake, but because you're worthy. And so, Lord, if there's somebody here, and they just need to praise the Lord, help them to do that in this invitation moment. If there's somebody here who literally just needs to bow down in submission, let them do that. If there's somebody here who needs to soften a heart and not respond to the word of God hard-heartedly, let them do that. And may all of us walk out of here in obedience to the word of God. We give this invitation. Thank you for inviting us to come. In Jesus' name, amen.